0: Section 15 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ezekiel. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Part 2 of Chapter 33. The Biology of the Seasons. 3 the biology of autumn. Autumn fruits. Although autumn is the time when the tide of the year turns, a dominant biological impression is that of the abundance of life. We get that impression in the orchard and in hedgerow alike when we observe the abundance of fruits. Leafing in spring, flowering in summer, fruiting in autumn, resting in winter. Such is the plant's normal life story. A fruit consists of the full-grown seed box or seed boxes, often with accessories in the form of any parts of the flower or flower stalk that may persist after the pollination. When the insect visitors have done their work and the possible seeds or ovules have become real seeds with a developing egg cell within, the nectaries are closed and the surplus sugar may be drafted into the fruit, as in stone fruits and berries. But there are, of course, many kinds of fruits, pods, capsules, nutlets, nuts, which are not succulent. What are the chief uses of fruits to the plants that bear them? The essential part of the answer to this simple question is that the use of the fruit is racial, not individual. They protect the seeds and they may help to scatter them. For example, when they dry and break, like the withering leaves they are, or when, with their dead roughnesses, they adhere to passing animals. In other cases, the succulents and fine colors attract hungry birds and fruit-eating mammals. At first glance, it does not seem clear why being eaten should be of great service. But the point is that the seeds inside the fruit are often left undigested and are sown far and wide by the creatures that devour the fruits. Seeds are rich in proteins. Fruits have little of these valuable nitrogenous carbon compounds. They may have sugar, but sugar is simple compared with proteins and is non-nitrogenous. Supposing the seeds are not eaten, it requires one and a half pound of grapes, two pounds of strawberries, two and a half pounds of apples, and four pounds of pears to furnish as much protein as there is in a hen's egg or a small handful of peas. The significance of this is that what is spent in the fruit is lost, but what is stored in the seed is a legacy. The scattering of seeds. When man is harvesting, nature is scattering seeds. On a genial autumn day, the pods of the gorse may be heard bursting. Many capsules crack less violently, sometimes helped by seed-eating birds. Rough-coated fruits which may be practically equivalent to seeds adhere to furry animals like rabbits and fall off by and by others like dandelion down and thistle down are wafted about singly by the wind and the plumose nutlets of the clematis or traveller's joy are entangled in long lines which float off with a beautiful wavy motion like silver serpents in the air Some birds digest the seeds they eat, but many fruit-eating birds pass out the seeds undigested and none the worse for their sojourn in the food canal. Other seeds, as is noted in the article on interrelations, are distributed in the clodlets which accumulate on birds' feet and are washed off far away. There are many other methods of seed scattering. Thus, the peanut pokes its pod into the earth, and the beautiful ivy-leaved toad flax on the wall pushes its box fruit into a cranny, both behaving almost like animals, though the whole process may be explained in terms of automatic tropisms. The seed scattering in autumn impresses us with the abundance of life, but the other side of the picture is the abundance of death. The chances against the germination of the seed are so enormous, Tennyson wrote with reference to nature's prodigality. Of 50 seeds, she often brings but one to bear, and he afterwards thought that he should have written myriad instead of 50. Darwin noted that the common spotted orchis may have 30 seed boxes, each with 6,200 seeds. If we allow 400 bad seeds to each box, there would be 174,000 seeds from one plant. These would cover an acre. The grandchildren would cover the island of Anglesey. The great-grandchildren, the whole land surface of the globe. Such things do not happen. The chances against the success of the seeds are so great. As we are told in the immortal parable, There is enormous mortality and apparent wastage, but part of the elimination is discriminate, and this winnowing, singling, sifting, which we call natural selection, is one of the secrets of progress. Withering leaves. All through the summer, the green leaves have been the seat of intense activity, but this wanes in autumn and they wither they have begun to suffer from the wear and tear of living. The furnishings of the cell laboratories are becoming worn. Moreover, it is well that the leaves should die, reducing the exposed surface from which water is given off. For as the soil gets colder, it becomes more difficult for the roots to keep up the supply. But before the leaves fall off, they surrender all their useful material to the plant that bore them. There is a passage of sugar, green pigment, and more complex materials, even living matter itself, into the stem and root. There is almost nothing left in the withered leaf but ashes and beauty. When the chlorophyll recedes, it leaves yellow grains behind it, and the tree is crowned with gold. Often there appear special waste pigments, such as anthocyan, also occurring in flowers and fruits, which give the leaves of bramble, vine, and Virginia creeper their autumnal splendor. In various ways, a weak line is established at the base of the leaf where it joins the twig. To the inside of this, a corky partition grows across, which helps in the actual separation and forms a protective scar. The windy day comes and the leaves fall in thousands to enrich the earth as they enrich the tree the work of earthworms it is in autumn that we see most of the work of earthworms dragging leaves into their burrows and thereby making vegetable mold covering the surface with their castings of fine earth ground to powder in their gizzards with their burrowing bruising and burying they have made most of the fertile soil of the world this has been dealt with fully elsewhere Flights of Gossamer Almost at any time of the year, there may be a shower of gossamer, but the characteristic time is in autumn, naturally enough, for the biological significance of the occurrence is as a spreading out of small spiders from a crowded area, and the crowding is greatest after the abundance of summer. What happens is certainly remarkable. Certain small spiders, especially when they are young, mount on a breezy morning on posts and paling or on the top of tall herbs. They stand with their head to the wind and allow threads of silk, often four, to float out from their spinneret. The multiple jets of liquid silk harden instantaneously on exposure to the air and the wind begins to tug them. Then the small spider lets itself go from its perch and usually turning upside down allows itself to be carried on the wings of the wind, supported by the silken floats. Reference had been made to this in another article, and it is enough to say that when thousands of spiders make their aerial journeys on a suitable morning and eventually sink to earth, the threads may cover great stretches of lynx and meadow, field and hedgerow, and there is a shower of gossamer, the wingless aeronauts or balloonists may be borne for many miles, sometimes far out to sea. And, except in the last case, they are often successful in their passive migration. Preparations for winter There is much in the biology of autumn that may be summed up in the idea of preparing for the hard times of winter. There is much storing on the part of plants. There is much on the part of animals, both inside their bodies and outside, The bud gets its hard, sometimes varnished, protective scales. The animal may get a thicker coat of fur. In the fall of the leaf, there is a particularly striking example of a widespread tendency to sacrifice the more vulnerable parts and entrench. The birds we call summer visitors make their way southwards to more hospitable shores, and there are other movements besides true migration which may take place in autumn. A true migration is a seasonal mass movement from the crowded breeding place to a place for recuperation, typically the winter quarters, whence there is normally a return of the survivors the following year. Of course, there are exceptional cases like the migration of the freshwater eels to the deep sea, where they seem to die after spawning. But in ordinary cases, the migration is a periodic mass movement with a return journey. The Story of the Lemmings It seems warrantable to distinguish from true migration such mass movements as lemmings sometimes illustrate in the autumn. Brehm tells us how a warm summer increases their numbers past computing and past supporting. Scarcity of food begins to be felt, and their comfortable life comes to an end in panic. Their fearless, bold demeanor gives place to a general uneasiness, and soon a mad anxiety for the future takes possession of them. Then they assemble together and begin to migrate. The same impulse animates many simultaneously, and from them it spreads to others. The swarms become armies. They arrange themselves in ranks, and a living stream flows like running water from the heights to the low grounds. All hurry on in a definite direction, but this often changes according to locality and circumstances. Gradually, long trains are formed in which lemming follows lemming so closely that the head of one seems to rest on the back of the one in front of it, and the continuous tread of the light little creatures hollows out paths deep enough to be visible from a long distance. In the mossy carpet of the tundra, The longer the march lasts, the greater becomes the haste of the wandering lemmings. Eagerly they fall upon the plants on and about their path, and devour whatever is edible. But their huge numbers impoverish even a fresh district in a few hours. And though a few may pick up a little food, nothing is left for those behind. The hunger increases every minute, and the speed of the march quickens in proportion. Every obstacle seems surmountable, every danger trifling, and thousands rush on to death. If men come in their way, they run between their legs. They face ravens and other strong birds of prey defiantly. They gnaw through haystacks, climb over mountains and rocks, swim across rivers and even across broad lakes, arms of the sea and fjords. A hostile company follows in their wake. Wolves and foxes, gluttons, martins and weasels, the ravenous dogs of the Laps and Samoyeds, eagles, buzzards and snowy owls. Ravens and hoodie crows fatten on the innumerable victims which they capture without trouble from the moving army. Gulls and fishes feast on those which swim across the water. Diseases and epidemics are not a wanting and probably destroy more of the lemmings than all their enemies put together. Thousands of carcasses lie rotting on the wayside. Thousands are carried away by the waves. In some cases, the remnant of the army reaches the sea, and this also the lemmings seek to cross. Obedient to the instinctive command ingrained in their dull-witted, smooth brains to go straight on at all costs. The waves of the North Sea or the Baltic sweep over them, and the march of the lemmings is ended, and their population problem solved. 4. The Biology of Winter Winter is the low tide of the year, fundamentally because the reduced income of heat slows the chemical processes which living involves and because the reduced income of light checks the manufacturing activity of the green leaves. But there are other reasons. The low temperature makes it imperative that many of the delicate structures of plants and animals should be shed or absorbed, else the whole creature will be fatally injured. The hardness of the frost-bound earth makes it necessary that many animals should lie low. In the scarcity, In the storms and the short days, there are reasons enough for the migration of birds to the south. Behind all this, there is the physiological need for rest after toil. Winter whiteness. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the biology of winter is the variety of solutions that different creatures offer when face-to-face with the same problem. The cold, the scarcity, and the storms. A neat solution is to be found in the change to whiteness, which occurs in ptarmigan and mountain hare, in the Hudson's Bay lemming and the Arctic fox, and in the common brown stoat, which becomes the pure white ermine. The blanching is usually brought about by growing a new unpigmented suit, though there is sometimes a removal of the pigment from individual hairs. In the new-grown white hair or feather, and in a hair that has turned white, the place of the pigment is taken by gas vacuoles, from the surfaces of which the light is so perfectly reflected that the hair or feather appears white, just like foam or snow. Many northern creatures, such as polar bear, white whale, Iceland falcon, and snowy owl, are more or less white all the year round. In these cases, the whiteness is permanent. In the other cases, it is periodic. In all cases, no doubt, a constitutional predisposition to the suppression of pigment has been established. But it is probable that the low temperature is the immediate condition of the non-appearance of the pigment. We must keep in mind the case of the wan Newt, called Proteus, from the Dalmatian Caves which is always pigmentless in the darkness, but rapidly develops pigment when kept in the light. Similarly, the stoat sometimes remains a stoat, for example, in the south of England or, somewhat mysteriously, in individual cases. We do not know enough as yet to say how far the whiteness of the winter suit expresses an ingrained racial curiosity not to form hair pigment in the fall of the year, and how far the whiteness means that the cold has directly and individually affected the chemical routine of the body and the circulation in the skin. We await more facts. When we almost tread upon the white ptarmigan among the snow on the high hills, we are inclined to lay considerable emphasis on the protective value of the whiteness, which gives the bird a garment of invisibility. We should be slow to reject this interpretation, but suspicion rises in our mind when we see how conspicuous the mountain hare often is when there is no background of snow. We are also aware that the stoat has almost no enemies from which it may escape by turning into a white ermine. And if it be said that the elusive carnivore is enabled to slink on its prey, say a ptarmigan or a grouse, among the snow, it may be replied that the ermine is conspicuousness itself when the surroundings are not white. In short, there must be some deeper significance in the periodic whiteness of ptarmigan and ermine, and in the permanent whiteness of snowy owl and polar bear. The answer to the biological riddle is that, for a warm-blooded animal in very cold surroundings, the most economical dress is white it loses least of the precious animal heat. It is physiologically the fittest dress because it conserves the warmth of the body which enables the chemical processes to go on quickly and smoothly. In very hot surroundings a white dress is again the best, for it absorbs less than other colors would of the external heat. Lying low. Another way of meeting the winter is to sink into lethargy. Lying low and saying nothing. When there is no income, the only chance is to have no expenditure, or almost none. Thus, the snail closes the mouth of its shell with the lid of hardened lime and slime, and, seeking the recesses of an old wall, lies inert through the cold months, not without some loss of weight and some degeneration in its tissues." When the outside temperature is near the freezing point, the heart of the garden snail may beat only four times a minute instead of the forty times observed in summer. It is hardly a modus vivendi, a way of living, that this snail has adopted. But it is a way of not dying, and that is always something. The same kind of lethargy is to be seen in the chrysalids of moths and butterflies, which often remain hidden away during the winter months in many ways like the seeds of plants. But it must be remembered that in both cases, changes may be going on, especially as the severity of winter begins to yield before the approach of spring. The full-grown frog feeds on insects and grubs, on earthworms and slugs. But these are not readily available in the winter, so the frog snuggles into a hole in the bank or up a disused drainpipe or even into the mud, though this is rare, and sinks into a winter torpor, which must not be confused with the true hibernation restricted to a few mammals. Similarly, there are tortoises and terrapins that bury themselves in the dry ground or in the wet mud and lie quiet all the winter through. In some kinds of tortoises, the winter torpor does not set in if they are kept in artificially heated quarters, and it is interesting to learn that this disturbance of the natural rhythm sometimes upsets the constitution in rather subtle ways. Another instance of lethargy may be found in the limbless lizards or slow worms, which coil up together, sometimes a dozen of them in a mossy bank and a great tangle of adders is sometimes found in the recesses of a cairn or haystack. In cold-blooded animals such as reptiles, amphibians, and fishes, the temperature of the body tends to approximate to that of their immediate surroundings, hence the advantage of a confined space or blanketed nook, which is a little warmer than the open. The body may become stiff without fatal results. But if the heart should be actually frozen, there is no recovery. We cannot help wondering that survival is so frequent, especially in cases where the normal life is intensely active. It is not difficult to understand survival when an insect spends the winter in a well-wrapped-up quiescent pupa state. But we have to bear in mind cases like the full-grown queen wasp or hornet in the crevice of an old tree or the full grown queen humble bee in a hole in a mossy bank. Winter sleep. In the article on mammals there is some discussion of true hibernation, as seen in hedgehog and marmot, dormouse and bat. A brief reference must therefore suffice. A few mammals, such as those just mentioned, have some imperfection in their warm bloodedness, that is, in the power, confined to birds and mammals, of adjusting the production of heat and the loss of heat so that the temperature of the body remains constant. The hibernators are those mammals that cannot balance their books as regards heat. When the cold weather sets in, they give up a hopeless struggle. In obedience to an ingrained constitutional rhythm, they betake themselves instinctively to some snug corner or well-curtained recess. The temperature of this restricted space is higher than that of the open world, so that the relapse of the winter sleeper into a sort of reptilian cold-bloodedness is not fatal. If they hibernated in the open, it would be the end of them. But in a recess, they do well. Condensation into small bulk. In plants like tulips and hyacinths, we see another way of meeting the winter. The whole body of the plant is condensed into more compact and less vulnerable form. In the same way, the shedding of leaves is like a relinquishing of outposts when hard-pressed. A bud is a shoot in winter quarters. A very interesting case is that of the rootless bladderwort of the loch that captures water fleas in tiny traps on its floating stem. In autumn, the terminal buds, heavily laden with reserves, drop off and sink to the warmer water at the bottom. Whence, lightened, they float up again in spring and start new plants. This is to be compared to the not very familiar, well-protected external buds, hibernacula, of colonies of small aquatic animals called polyzoa, which persist throughout the winter when the rest of the colony dies. Similarly, the freshwater sponge in the river or lake rots away in the autumn, but does not wholly die. Certain clusters of cell called gemules appear in the moribund body, each well compacted together, and encased in beautiful capstan-like spicules of flint which fit closely into one another. These start new sponges in the spring. Although they are not very well known, there are many illustrations of this method of meeting the winter by condensation and incisation. Another solution already referred to in connection with autumn is laying up stores. The squirrel with its stores of nuts is the instinctive counterpart of the intelligent housewife. The hamster with its stores of grass and grain is the instinctive counterpart of the intelligent farmer. It must be recognized that the storing habit in hive bees is an essential condition of the persistence of the community throughout the winter. It is interesting to know of the Mediterranean ant, Aphinogaster sardoa, which lives in holes in the ground but does not store. Huddling together is their form of sociality. They form living balls, ant interlocked with ant, by the mandibles and tarsal joints, and they hold the eggs, larva, and pupa in the middle. It is almost like a diagram of a primitive society, and certainly matriarchal. A ball consists of 300 to a 1,000 individuals. Males have not been found, and the investigator saw only one queen. In winter, the ball is very stiff and is slow to relax when it is unearthed. In summer, however, the ball is naturally more plastic. It is always being unmade and remade. Now, the point is that this simple case where the whole communal life is summed up in huddling together is the beginning of the anthill, in which abundant storing has made more elaborate social life possible. Migration Neatest of all the solutions is the circumventing of the winter illustrated by the migratory birds which literally know no winter in their year. Enough has been said of this in the article on birds, but a reference is necessary here to complete our survey. It has become ingrained in the constitution of the great majority of our north temperate birds to pass in autumn from their nesting place, always in the colder part of their migratory range, to a resting place in warmer, southern lands. The neatest way of meeting the winter is to evade it altogether. And that this is relative is plain enough from the fact that many a curlew finds it sufficient to descend from the inhospitable moorland to the fields by the shore, and that many a lapwing finds it enough to pass from Aberdeenshire to Ireland. It must also be noted that various birds that nest in the farther north, such as field wear, redwing, red snow-bunting, great northern diver, and little auk, find Britain very congenial in winter and are our winter visitors. Reduction of numbers. On a different tack altogether is the solution of the winter problem, which is suggested by the empty wasp nest. There has been a drastic reduction of the population so that only the young queens are left to survive the winter, which they pass in solitude and lethargy in the shelter of some partly broken tree stem. Towards the end of the autumn, there is a grim tragedy in the wasp nest, for the wasp grubs that are left in their cells are devoured. But this wholesale infanticide is only anticipating the death which the cold weather would soon bring about. And it may be that the gorging helps the young queens to pass the winter months in their cupboardless hiding places. The same kind of solution is exhibited elsewhere as in the case of humble bees, for of the large summer community only the young queens live on through the winter. Elimination Such cases naturally lead us to the conspicuous fact in the biology of winter that it is a time of sifting, the time of severest elimination. Winter is indeed an opportunity for rest and recuperation, but it is also an opportunity for winnowing. The rest and sleep of winter are often the necessary conditions of the vigor of another spring, but in a deeper way it is through the sifting, winnowing, pruning, or elimination of ages of winters that there has been spring after spring of progressive evolution. End of section 15